Hey guys, welcome to our season finale of our COVID-19 season, where we're welcoming superstar, amazing special guest, Rachel Louise Snyder. Can you tell I am a huge fan? I'm a huge fan. So her book, No Visible Bruises, was a total game changer in this field. This book changed my perspective of domestic violence. I mean, her inclusions from everything, from the perspective's perspective to the question of accountability, and then her unflinching take on how politics are influencing the domestic violence world. It's a groundbreaking piece of work. And it looks at domestic violence as the multifaceted issue that it is. It's a matter of fact, it's accessible, and throughout the whole thing, it's empathetic. And today, we're having a talk with her. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for jumping on Zoom with me. I am thrilled because it's Rachel Louise Snyder. I love your work. I'm like a huge fan. Like seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Um, I'm very happy with how the book is done and the changes it's hopefully bringing to some of the problems we face and you know all that stuff. So. Oh yeah. Um, what sort of major changes did you first see after the book was released? I mean, the, the very first changes were that it was taken seriously in the literary world. And that may sound like a strange, um, that may sound like more self-serving than I mean it to. Like my hope for the book was that it would go beyond the domestic violence world because people in the domestic violence world already know that these problems exist, right? And so I sort of wrote the book for people who have no conception of why domestic violence should matter to them. Um, and so when it started to go beyond the traditional domestic violence avenues, that's when I felt like, oh, this is, this could be, this could be really great, right? It's like, it's like trying to get people who don't go to church to go to church, <laughs> right? Like the ones who already go, or maybe not the one, you know, that's a bad, it's a bad analogy because I'm such an atheist, but it's, you know, it works in the context. So I knew I saw that kind of happening. And then what was surprising to me was how much it was embraced by the domestic violence world, the advocacy world. Um, not because I didn't think that they wouldn't appreciate it, but because I thought I didn't have anything to teach them. <laughs> and it's been shocking to me and really gratifying to see just how much it's been um, embraced in that world as well. I'm really curious for people inside this world of domestic violence, what sort of things that they say, wow, I never thought about this or wow, thanks for highlighting this specific thing? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good question. And I, one I feel like I could answer in so many different ways. I mean, the first thing is that so much of the world of domestic violence, and I would say, maybe this is the world of social sciences in general, is siloed. I mean, I, I, I teach at a university. And so this is common in the university, you have, you know, this department and this researcher looking at this one thing. Um, and what that means is that there isn't a ton of collaboration. And so the more successful programs I've seen as I've traveled around the country have been the ones that are really good at collaboration and really good at sort of communicating across bureaucracies. Um, it's been surprising to me to learn, like one of the things that 
I sort of laugh about when I give presentations, but um, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast are sort of each um, uh, progressing different arenas in the domestic violence. I mean, like the advent of high risk teams started on the East Coast and they're sort of slowly moving across the country. And, you know, the advent of family justice centers and, you know, things like strangulation training started on the West Coast and they're kind of moving East, right? And there's this like mixing of, of approaches, all of which are successful in their own, I mean, all of which are moving the dial to some degree. Um, but the other thing I'll say is that we, when we read domestic violence stories, we often get the story of the victim and we don't, we don't talk to the abusers. We don't talk to the violence programs. Very, it's not uncommon for me to meet domestic violence advocates and facilitators in abuser intervention programs who've never met each other or spoken to each other or talked about collaboration. So I also get that, that, you know, the book is, um, you know, is unique because you have, you have, I have this side of like, what is it for someone who's violent? Like, what does it feel like to be inside them? It's really interesting that you bring up the fact that things are so separated because even here in Washington state, I do see that sometimes with certain at like centers, which is quite strange. Why do you think there is this lack of communication, not just between police departments and advocates, but even between different groups and advocacy organizations? Um, you know, probably human ego, which I hate to say is the case, but probably human ego. I mean, um, you know, people are competing for a very small pool of funds and, um, you know, that could have something to do with it. I mean, from my perspective, we should all be collaborating and we should all be not reinventing the wheel. You know, if there's more than one domestic violence agency in town, they should be doing separate maybe separate things to be more effective um, and, and maybe work together. I mean, it seems like if you're in a county and you've got more than one in a county, it seems like working together would only make both entities stronger. But I also think in the case of like police departments specifically, and maybe even, I would maybe even include like prosecutors, you know, or DA's offices, they have such strong cultures historically that it's not just a matter of kind of like getting people in a room to talk it's getting people in a room to talk in a way that they can be open and honest and, and vulnerable about what they're not doing well what they could do better and that's very hard for people because people are, are you know are egotistical we're arrogant we want to feel like we're doing everything right you know I mean, the police are no different. We're seeing that now. The, the difference is that with police, the stakes are, are higher. So in the book, you speak to a lot of these different groups and organizations, especially those that historically haven't been open to these conversations. So how did you approach them in a way where they were comfortable speaking with you? Well, I mean, ride-alongs are pretty... Uh, like ride-alongs sound exciting, but they're actually just really boring. Like hardly anything happens. You're always put in a car where they're not going to get the first call, right? Or they're going to get maybe the drunk driver or something that is like, they're not going to get like a high 
you know, violent situation. Um, very, very rarely. Um, you know, first of all, it was time. I had the luxury of time. Um, when I, when I approached different agencies, they don't, of course they don't trust me at first. Why should they? I'm just, I'm some reporter who's coming from nowhere. Right. But, um, like in the case of the Jeannie Geiger crisis center who started the high risk team movement, um, it took, I wrote about them for the New Yorker and it took about three years just to write that one story because of the ethical complications with writing around about domestic violence. Like you don't want to put anyone in danger by telling their story. And they saw that I was committed to that, to telling the story, but not putting anyone in danger and also just not giving up. Like, how often do you do a magazine story where someone has the luxury of taking three years to do that story? Like only the New Yorker would that happen with any other magazine would have killed that story. Like, you know, we're tired of waiting. So, I mean, I guess it's just a matter of time. Um, in certain instances, people introduced me to other people and that gave me some, you know, some street cred as we, as they call it. Um, in the case of like Michelle Monson Mosier's family, again, it was like, I flew out there to Montana. It's not a super easy place to get to. And I spent just a ton of time and I, I wanted them to tell me all about her. I wanted her to become a full person to me. And so I think they, they saw that, you know, I think they, I don't know, they believe it. I also have a long body of work that they can look at for other examples of how I sort of approach things too. So there is something to say about, you know, getting older and being like, look, I have 25 years of, you know, articles to show you. <laughs> oh, that must be nice. Um, speaking of yeah. Michelle Mosier, the first part of your book centers on her story. How did you choose this woman's story as, you know, a way to start your book? Well, yeah, there were any number of stories I could have started with, but so first of all, she was killed and her children were killed and he was killed. And so in that regard, um, I didn't have to worry about, <laughs> this is going to sound crass, but I didn't have to worry about somebody's safety. So I could tell, I could sort of tell the truth. Plus enough time had gone by. She was killed in 2001. And I started interviewing the family in like, I don't know, maybe 10 years after that or, you know, 2013, 12 years after that or something like that enough time had gone past that um, the, the family could share things with me uh, without it, just without them just falling apart. I mean, I, I didn't interview her mother, Sally, a single time without both of us crying, not once. So I don't want to say that we weren't crying through those interviews, but we, but Sally was able to share things and um, she had a lot of reflections. And then also Rocky's family was willing to talk, which is really unusual. Um, and if we are not willing to, to sort of hear both sides, then we're never going to fully learn what we can do better. And everyone involved in the case was willing to talk, which was unusual. And her case hit so many of the things with domestic violence that are so dogged, like what happens when there doesn't appear to be physical violence, you know? Um, so her case just sort of hit 
all those checks, all those marks. And also I just feel about Michelle that, um, you know, she was 23 when she was killed, but to have graduated high school on time at 18 years old with two kids under the age of three takes some determination and some will. And I just feel like her death, um, there's a way in which she would have maybe done something really great in her life had she lived. So there's that too. And for listeners who might not have heard this story, um, you mentioned Rocky and that was her husband. Her husband, her husband killed her and then killed the two children they had and then killed himself. Yeah. And this is the other thing, like, I'm sorry for interrupting, but this is the other thing about domestic violence that we forget. Like, we think of it as a woman's story or whatever. Like, look, the patriarchy that raised Rocky also raised Michelle. And Rocky did not benefit from the patriarchy. He killed himself. You know, this is what we, like, forget about domestic violence. Like, it hurts perpetrators just as much as it hurts victims. Like, men kill themselves. Like, why are we buying into this system? It's a terrible system for everybody. You know, and if they don't kill themselves, they go to jail. I mean, some of them get off, and I understand all that. But, like, it's not serving the worst abusers of, uh, in domestic violence any more than it's serving victims. It's interesting you say that because I think the average person would not have that sort of... I guess, empathy towards the perpetrators. We see a lot of stories where usually women and children are killed and the abusers, typically men, walk free. They aren't punished in any sense and they're free to continue the same cycle with other partners. So what would you say well, to not these if people? they're killed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think if they kill someone, they actually walk free. I think most of the time they do go to prison, but they're allowed to live. I think what I would say, though, is this, like, am I angry at them? Of course. My rage is, like, off the charts at these men. But can I also see that they were once children who probably were, were shown abuse from their own fathers? Yeah. You know, I've never met a happy abuser. These men are not happy. These men are not satisfied with their own lives. Um... And we don't, we can't solve violence. We can't hope to, to make any kind of dent in domestic violence until we bring them into the conversation. I mean, I know, you know, I know it sounds terrible, although I think, I think a family like Rocky and Michelle's would agree. You know, when I sat talking to Rocky's parents, you know, the first time I met them, I spent seven hours with them and they were seven of the most difficult hours of my life in fact when i take when i'm interviewing somebody i record them but i also take notes because i have no faith in technology and um my i'm right-handed and all the fingers on my right hand were numb after that interview for about six weeks and i think it was a total psychosomatic response to just how intense those seven hours were and but they're they're devastated but also no one listens to them. No one wants to hear their side of it, you know? Not that they have a side, right? Not that they, even, even presenting it like that is, is false to some extent, I think. It's not like 
they they've ne they never try to justify Rocky's actions. They're enraged at him. They don't understand it at all, but they're in pain. And I think, what do we do when we fail to acknowledge people's pain? That doesn't make anybody better. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not an apologist for the behavior of these men by any stretch, but I am, I do believe that if we want to address violence, they have to be brought into the conversation. That brings me to a really difficult question then, which is that of what does accountability look like and what does justice look like? Because even though we can be sympathetic towards these men who've had you know, depression and they've experienced toxic masculinity, they're still choosing to abuse. And when they make that choice, yeah. it's that they do. So how do we find accountability for their victims? Oh yeah, and I'm not suggesting that they not be held accountable by any stretch. I mean, there's a big, there's a big step between like, you know, listening to these men and stopping violence, right? Like that's, yeah. that's a generation or two or however many, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, Gandhi always said, like, you know, you plant the seeds now, don't expect to see the growth in your own lifetime. And I, that's how I think when I'm talking about these things. You know, accountability, I think, is flawed in this country, just even conceptually. I think accountability means that we want, we want them to feel bad. We want them to stop their behavior. Um, and right now our only methods for accountability are punitive, right? We send them to prison mm. and no one ever came out of prison less violent, really. So I feel like that's where the disconnect is. Like what other options do we have? Like we send them to prison, we take away their livelihood so that they can't try to reform. They can't try to be better and provide for their children and whatever, whatever. Um, and I'm I'm not talking here about like situations where there's an attempted murder or or an actual murder, right? I'm not talking about the most lethal of all violence, but somewhere in between these, I think we need to categorize what we're looking at, the types of violence that we're looking at, and then figure out ways to address it. And certain things work better with some men than others, right? It's it's not a one size fits all proposition. So with some men once they have children and begin to see the cycle of violence you know inhibited that they've displayed in their home and they start to relate to their children that can be a big step for a lot of them once they begin to have a sense of like what they look like externally and how scary and terrifying they look in any given moment that begins to help them but like you know can we expect men to just en masse become nonviolent? No, I don't think so. But I do think that, you know, I'm doing a story right now for the New Yorker on accountability um, and what happens when the systems of accountability that we have set up, i.e. the law and the police and, you know, courts and jails, what happens when those aren't accessible to us? And, and we're answering that question right now during COVID, like right now, because courts are shut down and police aren't making arrests like they were. And um, yet there's batterers intervention classes going on all across the country. 
with men who are saying, I've had every resource taken away from me except for this one. I'm so glad that I can still call into Zoom. I think that flies in the face of what we assume about perpetrators, that they won't ask for help, that they won't come forward, that they won't seek to be different. Where do you think this mentality comes from? Because even me personally, in reading your book, that was one of the first times I ever really challenged my own internal emotions that abusers had the ability to change. So do you think the age-old idea of, no, they can't change is symptomatic of a greater issue? Um, I mean, I think it's limiting. And, uh, you know, I think, um, I think it, it is partly about awareness and education. I mean, you know, the very first thing that anybody needs to change is that they have to want to change. And the fact is we have not put resources into changing men's violence. We don't have prisons across the country that have programs. Very few prisons have strong programming, right? Whether it's educational programming or AA or whatever, you know, creative writing groups, all these things that you kind of hear stories about are, are certainly not protocol across the board. Prisons are terrible, terrible places. Um, you know, and we know, we all know about our mass incarceration problems in this country. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I think we need to be open to be more, I've kind of lost your question, but I think we need to be more, more open to being creative about the things that can work and more open to the idea that some people will want to change, right? For, for a lot of the, these people, you know, I listened to this podcast a couple of years ago called Seen on Radio, and it's S-C-E-N-E, Seen on Radio, and they do like Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know Seen on Radio? <laughs> no, his name's really cute, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so they did a theme, I think it was their second year, on men, and one of the things that really stays with me is that we have long put forth an argument that men are just violent by nature right? Like that, it comes with being a man. And one of the things they looked at was that very question, like, is that true? And they looked at war historically and decided like, no, in fact, in order for men to go into battle, they very often have to have some sort of behavioral modification in the form of drugs or alcohol some kind of culture that cultivates that violence, right? Like um, Napoleon gave his soldiers wine before they went into war. In fact, the British during World War II gave out, you know, wine and beer to their, to their guys. The Lord's Army in Uganda, in order to get 12-year-olds to train as child soldiers, he would get them stoned, right? He would make them wasted. So when you look at these kinds of things, you begin to question like, are they violent by nature or have we cultivated this through our cultural programming? You know, look at Hollywood. Certainly everybody knows the, the problems with Hollywood where, you know, the trope of the man is that he is angry or, or nothing. He's no other emotion, right? He's, he's either angry or he's just sort of, you know, normal as we say, right? Or the more complex um, version of Hollywood men is angry and horny at the same time. Angry and what? Angry and horny, or angry and hungry. Yeah, angry. angry. 
Yeah, there you go. There you go. So complex, the complexities um, of men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I do think that we that we limit men's um you know, just I and I'm only saying this kind of now and thinking about it now, so that I probably shouldn't like just form a theory like on the fly, but in the same way that we that we see women as very two-dimensional in so much of our culture. The same is true of men. Um, in the same way that, that people of color don't see themselves represented, we don't see a wide constellation of men represented. We see certain tropes over and over and over again. And even, even when you get out of talking about like war movies and you're talking about, I don't know, something like, um, is it the Hunger Games? No, not the Hunger Games. What's the one where Robert Pattinson plays a vampire? Oh, um, Twilight. Twilight. You know, I'm so the way, that. <laughs> yeah, the way romance is is framed in our in our pop culture conversations is disturbing, right? He he stands over her character, Christian Stewart's character, watching her as she's sleeping. I mean that that is framed to us as romance. When in fact, in the real world that I live in, it's stalking. Those are the kinds of messages I feel like get, you know, sort of seep into all of us about the, the patriarchy and what the patriarchy does and the ways it limits both men and women. So in your book, there is a line about how many abusers share narcissism. They are narcissists and they justify their actions. They remove themselves from their choices. Are narcissists ever really able to change? That's an, I don't know. That's a, such a good question because, you know, we're all living under the tyranny of one right now. Um, but there's no, there's no impetus for him to change, right? There's no, um, there's no account. Let's talk about accountability. There's no accountability for his bad behavior. He's surrounded by sycophants who, who adore his behavior and promote his behavior and encourage him to do more. Um, and again, I think it gets back to the idea of like, yes, you know, somebody can change if they want to, but they have to see the damage of their own behavior and not just the damage of, of, the damage they've done to the people around them and the people they love, but the damage it does to themselves in their own life, the way it limits their own life. You know, I think of somebody like um, Anthony, uh, what was the DA's, uh, Andrew, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it. The New York DA. No, 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 not the governor. The, the, the DA who was, um, you know, abused those women. He was a Democrat and he had been a staunch like supporter of women's causes and, um, and, um, There's been so many that I actually don't know. No, you'll know who I'm talking about. The oh, um, Eric Schneiderman. Yes, Eric Schneiderman. Oh my God, thank you. Um, you know, f for someone like Eric Schneiderman, who seems to be a smart, intelligent guy, like, look where that narcissism brought him. It brought him to this kind of, you know, global humiliation. He lost his professional standing. So for someone like that that is an opportunity to say, okay, what, you know, what are the conditions under which I participated in my own demise? What can I learn from this moment? Like, how can I do better? Um, will people do that? I don't know. Will he do that? I have no idea. But that's, I think, what it would take for someone with narcissistic 
this kind of extreme narcissistic tendency that we talk about in connection with domestic violence to change. I've met, you know, so many facilitators of abusers intervention programs around the country are former abusers. So I know they can change. I've seen them, but it's just not, you know, it's not funded. It's not studied. It's not widespread. Um, it's not included in conversations about domestic violence hardly ever. So that's part of the problem. That's a really hard one. And side note, Harvey Weinstein too was considered to be very um, outspokenly feminist. He walked at the um, Women's March. He you know, supported female actresses. At the same time, he was this horrible misogynist. Just Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I've always thought, and other people have said this too, like, why we have all these shelters all across the country. Like, instead of putting women in those shelters, let's put the men in those shelters. Let's keep the women, let's keep the victims in their communities and we'll take the perpetrators and put them in those shelters, right? And it's not prison, but it is taking the, the problem out of the community rather than putting the impetus for change on the victim. And then let's create programming around those, those shelters. Completely agree, completely agree. So I'm really curious because you completely called out our current administration. Um, a lot of times when advocates bring in politics, there is some blowback. So I'm really impressed that you are unafraid to go for it. But do you- Well, do I, you don't get... stand to lose, I don't stand to lose any funding from local governments. <laughs> in fact, I don't even have, I live in a place with no statehood right now. So my vote doesn't even count. I have no congressional representation. So I can be as outspoken <laughs> as I want. <laughs> is that really it though it's just you, you, do you think that the reason that there is such an impetus for advocates to not get political is because of lack of funding potentially yes yes a hundred percent that's what i think it is yeah yeah um and also because i think domestic violence affects um you know a, a wide range of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And so they, they are loath to be political because it's not just a problem that is affecting Democratic women or Republican women or, or Democratic men or Republican men, right? And so I think locally they pull funding from all kinds of city government sources and state sources. And so, yeah, you don't wanna bite the hand that feeds you. I think, I really think that that's it. But I, you know, nobody's feeding me so I can bite whoever I wanna bite. That's a terrible analogy. <laughs> Oh, I love, no, 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 no. I, I mean, I will cut any part that you say, cut this part out, but personally, I love that. <laughs> no, 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 you don't, you don't have to cut it. It's just, this is me being sort of silly, but. Um, oh, I, I'm, I'm silly all the time, so I'm really feeling you right now. I mean, I'll tell you, as a journalist, I'm not supposed to be, um, you know, one-sided, but I'm not writing about politics. And so, you know, and I'm never going to write about politics. It's not my thing. And in fact, um, you know, statehood for DC is a really big issue to me and a really important thing because there's 750,000 disenfranchised people paying uh, per capita much higher taxes than anywhere else in the country. So um, I will get on my soapbox about that any day. <laughs> <laughs> you are more than welcome to. I welcome it. So, all right, since you brought politics, let's, let's dive in. Full throttle here. Um, current administration. How far back is this going to set us in terms of progress for domestic violence? Oh, God, we are yeah. being kicked back to the stone age. We really are. I mean, Oof. look, 
it's not just VAWA, right? The Violence Against Women Act from 2018, which is still sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, right? Like, okay, that's bad. That's really bad. It's 2020 now. They haven't re-signed it. Here's another one that people lose sight of, right? Look at how many, how many uh, um, political appointees Trump has made, has churned through, right? Two, three layers, sometimes four layers in some of these offices. Has he appointed anyone to the Office of Violence Against Women? Not once, almost four years into his term, not once. We still have an acting OVW head. Fine, we have an acting head, but that's how little we matter to him. He hasn't even bothered making a single appointee to that office. Um, on the other hand, they are not in the majority in this country. They do not stand for women. They do not stand for progress, right? And I think that the numbers are in our favor. I think that what Trump has done is normalize what was up until the 2016 elections a very fringe element and fringe voices. And sure, I think a very solid argument is you can't put the genie back in the bottle, but the numbers are still with us. We still have the numbers. I really hope so. What sort of damage has it done having a figure like him in office? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think of our kids, you know, it's real. I have a 12 year old girl. It's really hard to explain why, like why Hillary Clinton who got more votes didn't win. Just that, just that basic thing, like putting aside the misogyny and all that kind of stuff. I mean, look, other people around the country say it much more eloquently than I do. I mean, the damage he has wrought is assuming that we win the next election is going to take a generation to untangle. The economic damage alone, forget about our standing in the world, forget about, you know, um, uh, the culture wars, right? Like just those are, it's, it's shocking to me. I mean, in that way, he's been incredibly effective. He has brought this country to, to its knees, I think in every, in every sense. And I think maybe, maybe it doesn't matter to people if we are not part of the global economy or global community, but that just means that they don't understand like how the world works, right? And they don't understand that their insecure place in the world is going to be even more undermined and even further undermined. I mean, I think that we are experiencing the movement of America from a developed world to a sort of second level developed world. You know, I travel a lot. I've lived overseas a lot um, in, in several different places and you travel anywhere I mean, you travel to Japan compared to the U.S., you feel like you are 100 years in the future. You know, people don't realize how far behind we are. You know, China, oh my God. China is like traveling in the land of the Jetsons. We are so far behind in, in, in every way, and he is taking us even further behind. So it's hard for me to, to see how we're going to come out of this, but I will say this. He has made people so angry and anger galvanizes people, you know? Martin Luther King was angry. He was nonviolent, but he was angry. And that anger was incredibly effective. When we're trying to connect to people and communicate like the complexities and the nuances involved with domestic violence, 
do you find that it's easier to engage them if they've had some experience with it firsthand, like they're a survivor or they've known a survivor or they've seen someone who has gone through the process? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's easier to engage with them. Um, I mean, in some sense, it's like underscoring what they've always thought. I mean, in some, in some ways they feel validated, but for me, the, the big challenge is, and I know, I know I've heard from I, hun, literally hundreds of victims across the country who have like written me letters and thanked me for the book. And I love that. And that's awesome. But for me, my personal challenge is to get people who don't think they have experience with it to understand why it matters to them. Because, because, and I'll tell you why, because that'll be your next question. Um, because, and you know this already, some, you know, domestic violence intersects with like every social issue that we're facing as a country. It is the leading cause of homelessness for women in America today. Certainly the, you know, the gender inequalities and all that kind of stuff is obvious, but it's also, you know, the, the sort of origins of violence for so many mass shooters today, right? And, and in fact, 54%. many more mass well, that's 54% is many of our mass shootings, right? Our mass shootings, 54% of them are domestic violence homicide. But the other 46%, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of them are introduced to violence in their homes or a lot of them have violence in their homes and then they go on shooting sprees or whatever because they have these expectations of what they're owed in the world. So there's all these different ways, right? And certainly we've already talked about mass incarceration. So you know, if you address domestic violence, you are addressing all these other types of violence in the world. And, you know, the thing, the thing I was going to say that I had forgotten this is sort of related is that like, we are in a culture war right now. We are in a, like a war of society in an American culture. When you look back historically at other moments when we've had these wars, you look back at the union movement or the civil rights movement, right? Or suffrage, all of those movements, terrible at the time, were won by the progressives. And that is the thing that gives me hope in this day and age. That like, yeah, we, we were in this kind of culture war in the 1960s over civil rights. And, and, and who won? We got the civil rights bill signed. Now, did we, make, did we make enough progress? No. Certainly, we need to keep making more progress. But I think people are shouting out and they're marching in the streets right now. And I think that's great. I think, I actually think that we need that. We need more people out there. But space apart by six feet wearing masks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. We need more people out there. Maybe not right this minute, but no. We'll, we'll, go, and wait. we'll go and wave and we'll, we'll wear gloves. So it'll be fine. There you go. <laughs> so, there you go. We'll okay. take a shift. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And this is a problem, and you've touched on this, but something I've had so much problems myself is how do we connect with people who are so far removed from domestic violence, from these issues because of their privilege, because of their position in life, and how do we get them to care and understand that it's all related and it affects them too? Well, I think partly like what I just said, I talk about the ways in which it intersects these other types of violence. I talk about the ways in which it intersects, you know, people, even wealthy people are not free from engaging with some issues, whatever those issues are, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, there'll, there'll be a way in which you can connect those dots for people. But I also think um, people want to feel like they are part of something that does some good in the world. And 
when you, in my experience giving, like go, going and giving talks around the country and all that, that, you know, to various people is they don't have to have experience with it to understand it, but they do have to be exposed to understanding it, right? They have to listen to somebody like me or someone like you come in and say, this is why this matters in your community. This is why, you know, this is, these are the ways in which domestic violence is fracturing this country. And I have found that people do listen, surprisingly. They listen a lot. That was really hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> so right now it's COVID-19. We're locked down everywhere. And we're seeing rates of domestic violence skyrocketing. And we're seeing gun sales skyrocketing. And looking around, what could we have done to have better prepared ourselves for the wave of survivors in crisis? Because we could have done something, I feel. <sighs> really tough question because, you know, the, part, of what is tough about that, part of what is tough about that question is that we actually don't know how bad it is yet. We know it's bad, but we don't know how bad. We know the places like Milwaukee are right now experiencing like record homicide levels. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> what could we have done better? We could have had a real leader who back in January said, wow, there's a global pandemic coming and we better prepare for this. What, what are other countries doing? What is Taiwan doing? What is New Zealand doing? Right. Countries that have been very successful in locking down their, their, you know, in, in, I mean, Taiwan has only had something like seven deaths from coronavirus and they're all back at school. They're back at school, they're back at work. Um, you know, I, I, I really think that it, that it should have taken leadership, right? We should have said, hey, let's make sure the states get the testing kits they need. Let's make sure they get the PPE they need. Let's make sure, oh, we have a report from the Department of Health and Human Services that says, says our hospitals are unprepared. This report is dated the third week of March. Let's figure out what we need to do to get those hospitals prepared that would have helped domestic violence because all of those external systems would have been kept going by the federal government, which by the way, is the responsibility of the federal government. It is not the responsibility of this mishmash of state governments. So again, I look to the, I look to the leadership. You know, I lived in Cambodia through H1N1 and SARS and um, you know, those could have been just as virulent and they weren't because we had better leadership. Oh, that's really depressing. Do you see a connection between rising gun sales and domestic violence at this time? Oh God, absolutely. I mean, look, we're not going to have stats on domestic violence homicides until the fall of 2021 at the earliest. Um, it's just going to take a while to shake out. But like anecdotally, I'm seeing communities that have had, that have gone years without a single domestic violence homicide and they're reporting one or two or three. So I think when we finally get the numbers, it's gonna be shocking and really upsetting. But I think right now, we just don't know. But yeah, I mean, record gun sales in March, record gun sales, it's pretty scary. Yep, and for my listeners, I did a whole episode on this in season COVID-19. Please check it out because it's a doozy.
Is there anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, I think that's good. I'm good. You covered a lot. <laughs> we did. Um, again, thank you so much. Like, I seriously, I love you. This is amazing to talk to you. And I hope that you can come to Seattle one day. Yes, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure, actually, to talk to you. That's a wrap, folks. For those of you who are going out and protesting, please be safe while you're at it. Wear a mask, wash your hands, do your best to keep yourself and your health safe. For those of you who can't protest, you have an immunocompromised system, please find a way to give back. I recommend the Loveland Foundation or the ACLU. If you have a question for us, please reach out, email thedvdiscussion at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at The DV Discussion. We all have stories, and they deserve to be heard. I'll see you next season. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the hotline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone.